Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to another enlightening episode of Get Your Tech On, our show on all things Doxis. Today's episode is Did You Know, part of our Back to Basics series in Doxis and Broadband Fundamentals. I'm your host, Brady Volp, with Nimbledis in the Volp Firm, and I'm thrilled to have the myth, the man, the legend, Ron (laughs) Rannick with me today. Ron's a 50-year cable veteran with the cable industry and fellow member of the SCTE and he needs no introduction, but please do take a moment to check out his detailed bio in the description below. Today, we're jumping headfirst into the riveting rabbit hole of doxis and broadband, tackling things you might think you know, and things you're pretty sure you don't know, and things you're convinced you know, but you're actually clueless about. It's like a game of tech terminology, hide and seek. We're not just going to define terms, we're here to dispel myths and clarify misunderstandings that have somehow taken root over time. From decoding the meaning of MSO to understanding the essence of MER, we're covering a broad spectrum of topics. Whether you're a seasoned expert or new to the field, prepare to challenge what you thought you knew about Doxis and broadband. So grab your notepad and get ready for a deep dive into the world of Doxis and broadband as we go back to basics and clear misconceptions along the way. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce the legendary Ron Rannick. Ron, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me, Brady. It's fun to be here, and thanks for the kind words in the introduction. Uh, I think today's presentation uh, will be a lot of fun for folks. There's some some nuts and bolts and basics on a number of topics that uh, I think most people know, but there, as you noted, a number of things that will be discussed today that oh, I didn't know that it meant that, or that's how you calculated such and such. So I think folks will will uh, have as much fun as we are putting this session on today. Um, and it's also going to be an informative session. And uh, there's enough material in this that um, I couldn't squeeze it all into one session. So this is going to be a two-parter. So today will be, will be part one. Yes, we labeled it part one. And I uh, also went Welcome to the chat room. Uh, I always see James Long already in there, so welcome, James. Welcome everyone else in the chat room. James says he has many misconceptions to vanish, so welcome, James. All right, we'll see what we can do. Well, let me push this the square the square this the share <laughs> screen button. I'll get this right here. And uh, easy for you to say, Ron. <laughs> yeah, easy for me to say, right. All right. Did you know? And of course, we got the professor up here. And no, I don't look like the professor. I have a whole lot more hair than this guy. Um, there you go. So <laughs> we can we can fix that, that one. We'll get we'll get, uh, get going here with some real real basic stuff. And remember, this is a this is a fun session, but an informative session. And if you have questions along the way, please feel free to ask. And and if if something that I'm talking about is not coming across as clearly as it should, uh, let us know, and I'll see if uh, see if I can refine the way I'm presenting the material here and talking about it. So let's start with some of the terminology of the industry. And, uh, of course, this first one is, did you know MSO is an abbreviation for multiple system operator? I see some people use it to describe multiple service operator. That is not what MSO is is, uh, used um, to reference. It is multiple system operator. And an MSO is a corporate entity or company or corporation like Charter or Comcast that owns or operates more than one cable system. Now, it's it's important to understand that MSO is not 
supposed to be a generic abbreviation in the same sense that LEC for local exchange carrier is. And I know a lot of people use it that way. I, I see the term or abbreviation MSO get misused in that, that regard a lot, and it's not. MSO is an abbreviation that, that refers to the, the companies that own um, more than one cable system. So local cable system, speaking of cable systems, is not an MSO. It might be owned or operated by one, but it's just a cable system. Now, this is an important point here. All MSOs are cable operators, but not all cable operators are MSOs. And you might look at that and say, wait a minute, how, what do you mean? Uh, I know there aren't that many left, but if you think about the, uh, the few remaining mom and pop or independent cable operations that are not affiliated with any MSO, they're not an MSO. They're just a cable operator. They may only own and operate one cable system. So that's not an MSO, has no affiliation with an MSO, is not part of one, and it's incorrect to call it an MSO. So MSO, that's the, the Comcasts, the Coxes, Charters, Cable Ones, and, and the others of the, of the cable world. Yeah, and you know, head end is one word. Now, this one, <laughs> this is one of those that people might argue with, and that's fine. Um, but in my uh, career, I had a chance to write for Communications Technology Magazine and some of its sister publications for almost 28 years. And I also had the opportunity to work with some really top-notch editors back then. Of course, they used to whoop me upside the head with, with old IBM selector typewriters and say it's one word. So it's not head-end, two words, or head-end hyphenated. And there's a picture on the screen of a small head-end in the facility. Of course, these days, most head-ends are a lot more sophisticated than what you see in that picture. You know, speaking of editors, Ron, I've I've had a good fortune of you being an editor for me, and and you've you've hit me in the head a few times with a typewriter. <laughs> so I do appreciate that. Um, but but I just I wanted to talk about the the um, cable operator versus MSO, and and as as when you write papers, a lot of times I think it's really important to understand that because. When you write, uh, you know, you, you say, well, a cable operator this or an MSO that, I tend to, to really, based on feedback that you give me, I tend to use cable operator more gen as a generic term because then it covers everyone in the industry. So I yeah. think it's really, like this information you're giving is really important for people to understand. If you use MSO, you're kind of excluding the cable operator that's not the MSO. Yeah, the, yeah, the independents and the, the mom and pops yeah. that are still out there. And I, I, you mentioned the, the editing part, and I still, I still do technical editing for Broadband Library and help them out with that in, in addition to writing for them. And, and uh, one, of the, one of my rules is when I, when I go through and edit articles that are submitted, I change, unless it specifically references a company like Comcast or Cox or others, uh, I will change MSO to cable operator because it's in many cases it's just not correct to say MSO in the context it's the the abbreviations being used because the way the the author of the article is really referring to it is is for cable operators and which includes MSOs and the in, independent um, cable companies that have no affiliation with an MSO and that's that's something I think a lot of people don't think about when they use that abbreviation correct. so I just say yeah, don't use it just use cable operator. Um, yeah. You know, unless there's a specific instance that references uh, um, a particular MSO. Now, this is one that I think most people should be aware of. But if you're not, did you know the word modem is derived from the combination of the first parts of the words modulator and demodulator? So it's a combination of the two. And, of course, for um, those of us in the cable industry, the most common type of modem with which we're familiar is the cable modem, and that's a, an electronic gadget that plugs in between the cable network and uh, 
the uh, subscriber's computer or or router or other device, and it basically converts analog RF signals from the cable network to digital data that is used by a computer, an access point, or a router, or whatever inside the customer premises. And then going the other direction, it takes digital data and converts it to RF, uh, analog RF for transmission in the upstream. But that's a modem. And for those of you who have been around a long time, you may recall our old telephone modems, those old analog dial-up modems that we used to access CompuSurf and some of the other online services uh, way, 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 way back when and way before um, cable modem technology was introduced by the cable industry. Thankfully, the cable modem replaced those devices. <laughs> I remember them all, yes. too, all too sadly. <laughs> I, I remember, um, and I think I had a, I don't think it was yet a 56K dial-up modem. It might have been a like a 33K or something. And I remember trying to download a 10, uh, 10 meg file, and it took all night long yeah. to do it. And, you know, the, the bad thing would be to get up in the morning and say, oh, the phone line had disconnected for some reason during the night and and uh, drop, and drop the download. Of course, these days you download a 10 meg file and it takes a, takes a couple seconds with a cable modem, which yeah. is pretty cool. And all right, so continuing with our, uh, our look at the terminology side of things, did you know that BER is an abbreviation for bit error ratio. Yes, we often call it bit error rate, but technically it is bit error ratio. And BER, by definition, is the ratio of errored or broken bits to the total number of bits transmitted, received, or processed over some period of time. And there are two equations that are commonly used to calculate BER. One is a is a pretty straightforward, and it goes along with the definition on this slide, and that's the number of errored bits divided by the total number of bits. And I'll give you an example of how this is used here in just a moment. Another formula that is probably less commonly used is the, the error count in, in a defined measurement period divided by the bit rate times the measurement period. Um, I like the first equation better. Um, I mean, both of them will give you the same answer, but the, to me, the first one is just a little easier to understand and a little easier to deal with. So let's, let's go through an example. Uh, let's say that a million bits are transmitted. Of course, these days, a million bits isn't very much, but let's just say a million bits are transmitted. And three bits out of that million are, are received in error They're because of you know, some interference or ingress or something between the transmitter and the receiver. So in this case, we're going to calculate BER by dividing the number of errored bits, three, by the total number of bits transmitted, a million. And that gives us a BER of three divided by a million equals 0.000003. And you look at that and say, wait a minute, Ron, that is not how we how we uh, specify BER. Well, technically, this is a correct way to do it, but it is not generally the way it's done. Um, most often, BER is expressed in, in a, uh, we'll call it a mathematical shorthand known as scientific notation. So in this case, the 0.000003 is equal to 3 times 10 to the minus 6th. And you can write that same scientific notation a couple other ways. If, um, if for instance, you're you're using some old, old, old-fangled word processing program or maybe an old-fashioned typewriter that doesn't have the ability to superscript uh, the exponent minus 6, then you use the little caret. So you get 3 times 10 with the little, little up arrow, which means that the numbers following it are an exponent, and then minus 6. And the way you'll commonly see it on test equipment used by the cable industry um, is 3.0e minus 06. So the, what that that last representation simply means it is it's three 
uh, times 10 to the minus sixth. Um, so it means the same thing as, uh, as what we saw before in the previous bullet. But here the E uh, means that the number following the E is an exponent. So uh, it would be superscripted if you were um, displaying this in traditional scientific notation format. So that's what that's all about. And did you know that MER is an abbreviation for modulation error ratio? It is not modulation error rate. MER is not a rate. It is a ratio. And, and specifically, it is the ratio of average signal constellation power to average constellation error power. So think of it as a type of digital complex baseband signal-to-noise ratio. And in fact, um, many people use the terms um, MER and SNR interchangeably, uh, which can cause some confusion because in the world of cable, particularly going back to the analog video days and analog audio days, um, we often used SNR to represent um, a baseband measurement, for example, the signal-to-noise ratio of an analog baseband signal. Uh, but SNR is kind of a generic term for the ratio of signal to noise power, uh, but it's commonly uh, interchanged in the data world with MER. So uh, I'll, and I'll, I'll clarify that here with an example in, in just a moment. So here's a, a very, very simplified mathematical formula that describes what MER is. And if you look at the graphic in the lower left of the screen, you can see we have a um, one quadrant from a very, very simple constellation diagram where we have the average error power represented by that little fuzzy cloud. And the average symbol power is the, is the length of the vector or that length of that black arrow going from the origin of this constellation out to the location of the ideal um, constellation point. And then, of course, the, because of noise and other things, the, the real constellation points can kind of splatter all over the place there in, in that cloud, if you will. Um, and what we're looking at then is the average error power. And so we take the base 10 logarithm, multiply, or it's 10 times the base 10 logarithm of the average symbol power divided by the average error power. Now, that's a pretty simplified way to do it. Uh, for a piece of test equipment or a set-top box or a cable modem that can report MER or even the upstream port on a CMTS line card, there's what it's actually computing. You know, you look at that and say, ah, that's got calculus and other nasty, gnarly stuff in it, and it does. But it is essentially the same thing as that simplified um, equation in the slide. But so you can see the MER equals 10 times the base 10 logarithm. You've got parentheses. And then the numerator, that represents your average symbol power. But for every single symbol point in the constellation, and then down below in the numerator and the denominator, you've got the average error power for every, every symbol point in the uh, constellation. And uh, that gives you, um, gives you your MER in dB. Um, so here's a way I like to think of it. Let me move this little box out of the way here. So think of MER from one perspective as kind of a measure of how fuzzy or spread out the symbol points in the constellation actually are. Now let me move this back over here. And then, whoops, click that, click that. And here are a couple of examples of upstream constellations for 16 qualm signals. So you've got a, a good-looking constellation on the left with good MER, and you'll notice down below... It's got the MER shown as 27.5 dB, which is not too shabby. Uh, of course, these days in our upstreams, it's not unusual to see even better MER numbers in this. But this is not too bad, uh, particularly for 16 qualm. And over on the right display, we can see, yeah, that's not so good. Notice how spread out all these constellation points are. And in this case, the MER for this entire constellation is about 19 dB, which is not all that good. Uh, so there you can see the good and not so good 
in both the constellation display and the numeric representations of modulation error ratio. Now, a, a point about this, um, since in most cases, those of us who work in the cable industry outside of a, a manufacturer or, or a lab testing environment are measuring or, or, or we're using a device that computes MER in basically what's called a QAM receiver circuit. So that would be the QAM demodulator and QAM receiver circuitry in a set-top box, a cable modem, um, the, uh, the DOCSIS chipset inside of our, our field meters, and then in the upstream direction in a cable modem termination system or CMTS, the burst receiver circuitry will compete or compute the, uh, the modulation error ratio. But in all those cases, we're doing it in a receiver. So the correct uh, dis uh, description that is receive modulation error ratio or RXMER. There is a such thing as a as transmit modulation error ratio or TXMER. That would be the RX. That would be the MER from a transmit source as measured by an ideal receiver. Now, of course, ideal receivers don't exist, but you can get some some very very high end ones that can do a pretty good job of reporting what's going on in a transmitter. So, for example, if you're a modulator, a QAM modulator manufacturer, you might be interested in knowing what the MER of the transmitted signal is. Um, but anyway, so that's the difference. But the vast majority of the time, for those of us who are working in head ends and hub sites and out in the field and whatnot, we're dealing with RXMER, or receive modulation error ratio. Ron, for new technicians in the field, because uh, you spend a lot of time on MER, what, what do you feel is the importance of MER? And if you're a new tech, tech like should they, should they really bother to learn what MER is and, and how to interpret good MER versus bad MER? I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, from one perspective, you could argue that, that sometimes too much emphasis is put on MER because there are a lot of other things going on in the data signal. But from a practical perspective, RxMER is a really good metric with which to characterize the health of a, of a digital signal. And uh, um, there are so many things that can affect it. And I'll see um, in some of the, the social media forums where techs hang out, they'll, they'll talk about having low MER and they, they'll look on a spectrum analyzer and say, I don't see any noise in there that's, that was, would cause the MER to be low. And I think in that case, it's, it's because there may not be a complete understanding of all of the different things that can affect MER. And it's right. pretty much any impairment that exists in the channel, any impairment. So yes, carrier noise ratio can affect the reported MER in a in a device, a test instrument, or you know, head end head end device, or whatever. But other things that can affect the reported MER include um, transmitter phase noise, and that would usually be a, an issue, a technical issue that says, hey, that transmit transmitter device needs to be replaced. Receiver phase noise, kind of the same thing. Carrier noise ratio, linear distortions, and these are what I like to call the invisible impairments. You don't see these on a spectrum analyzer. So micro reflections, amplitude ripple, and tilt, and group, group delay. delay yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't show up on a spectrum analyzer. You see no the noise floor. You have a really good carrier noise ratio, and you can have really crappy MER um, because the the uh, the impairment that is causing the MER to degrade may be one of these so-called invisible impairments, like a really nasty case of, of group delay distortion. And yeah. then there are nonlinear distortions, the the, the uh, second second order distortion, third order distortion, composite triple beat, composite second order, even cross modulation way back when, common path distortion. All these things can degrade the MER. In channel ingress, of course, laser clipping, improper modulation profiles, you know, that's not something you'll measure on your spectrum analyzer. 
upstream data collisions, all those things can impact the, uh, the RxMER. Now, here's an example of, did you know that a CMTS is reported upstream SNR, and, and, and depending on the make and model and software version and stuff in the CMTS, it may report it as SNR or MER. It depends. But in this case, you can see an example of where, where the CMTS reported upstream SNR, and that was actually RxMER. Um, and same thing, did you know that a cable modems and set-tops reported downstream SNR is RxMER? So they're all the same thing. Uh, the burst receivers compute the RxMER and report it. Now, it may well be that the vendor of the set-top box or modem decided to call it SNR, but technically speaking, it is RxMER. Yeah, and a really cool thing that's happening, Ron, as we're, we move to distributed access Net networks where we have RFI, and, and, and as we're seeing in a chat from both CypherStream and um, and Peter Whitman are talking about, so we start putting RFI out in the field. We're pushing that digital network closer to the subscribers, so we, we get typically better MER, or as you say, RxMER performance. So CypherStream seeing yeah. they're seeing as much as a three dB improvement on their MER or, or RX, MER in the downstream, RX, MER. Well, I guess it's RX, MER either way, right, Ron? Yeah, so, and you may, see, you may see more than a 3 dB improvement, depending. Um, and what this, and the reason for that is with um, distributed access architectures, such as remote PHY or remote MACPHY, um, there's no longer an analog optical fiber link in, in use between the head end or hub site and the, the node. The, the RF electronics, are relocated from the, the head end or hub out to the node. And what used to be racks full of QAM modulators and whatnot are for the downstream are now on a chip inside yeah. of a an RPD um, remote PHY device module inside the node housing. And um, in that case, you've completely eliminated the analog fiber optic link. And since it's analog, it is susceptible to um, uh, degradation of the signals going through it. And you basically eliminate that degradation because the the uh, the fiber links between the head end or hub and and the node in the case of a remote PHY architecture or remote MACPHY architecture, uh, it's all digital. So yeah. you don't have that analog link degradation anymore. So you automatically pick up um, an improvement in RxMER just by, by virtue of switching to a digital link, which is you know, typically 10 gigabit Ethernet or or something like that. Yeah, and that's um, precisely what Peter Vittman said also in the in the chat. He you know he said it's it's really not the CIN itself, which is that link between the CMTS and the RFI node. It's the fact that just as you've eloquently said, Ron, it is the fact that you know, we have that chip, we have all the digital RF in the downstream being generated, and then we're also demodulating that in in, in the back. Yeah. Um, yeah, so and we've we've eliminated the analog optical electronics that's the that's the gist of it which yeah. improves the rxmer yeah so thanks for the conversation in the chat guys yeah and it works both directions downstream and upstream so now your biggest your biggest contributor to uh, the rxmer degradation in most cases unless there's a head end or hub site problem is going to be in your coax plant or subscriber drop um, and that's that of course is um, is certainly manageable um, and lets you, the, the use of this digital technology and, and distributed access architecture lets you focus on optimizing the quality of the analog RF part of your network. Oh, and here's one I have a lot of fun with. And because, because this abbreviation is misused and abused so often, 
And I remember seeing ads in some of the magazines years ago where the, even the leakage detector manufacturers misused the term CLI. Did you know CLI is an abbreviation for cumulative leakage index? CLI is not, I repeat, not the same thing as signal leakage. It's a mathematical snapshot of a cable system's overall signal leakage performance at a given point in time. In order to calculate CLI, and yes, you have to calculate it. You can't measure it. You have to calculate it. You have to go out and measure a bunch of signal leakage, and then you plug it into a mathematical formula to calculate it. So you cannot detect CLI. You cannot test CLI. You cannot measure CLI. There's no such thing as a CLI meter. It is a signal leakage detector. You are measuring signal leakage field strength. From that, you can take the field strength information from the leaks and the number of leaks and so on and plug it into this here formula, and it will give you the CLI. So this is one of those misused and abused abbreviations, and I've been harping on this for years. And this uh, one I learned today, too. This, is, this was a good did you know for me, Ron, because I actually <laughs> have – I've always synonymous – Whatever that word is that I'm trying to think of, I, I just use yeah. these kind of, I mean, CLI to me has always been leakage when it, I think it, about it. Isn't. It's, it's just it's CLI, I just get all my leakage equipment and, and they just it's go a, together. Huh? Yeah, you can't, there is no CLI equipment. You're, 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 what are you talking leakage. about? Yes, there is. <laughs> no, to measure leakage and you plug the number of leaks and over a certain field strength and the field strength of all these leaks, plug it into a formula, and it gives you a mathematical figure of merit for your, your cable network's signal leakage. Who knew? Uh, I am yeah. so glad I watched today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you're here in person, too. This is good. Okay, another one. Then we're continuing with the terminology. And you'll note um, that there's a whole lot on the, the terminology part of um, our business in this presentation. So did you know... The coax in coaxial cable refers to the fact that the center conductor and shield or outer conductor, if you look at them end on uh, from the end of the cable, which looks like two circles, share a common axis. So take a look at these crude drawings I made on this for the slides here. You can see if the end view of a piece of coax, you got the center conductor, the shield or outer conductor, and then the jacket around that. And you'll notice the outer conductor or shield and the center conductor are both circles and they both share the same axis. So it's Coaxial cable. Coax. Really, co, because cool. it's co, uh, like the same, and it's ax. A common axis. Yeah, common. And common axis. Coax. Yeah. Yes. That's That's one of those trivia things you can talk about with your friends in the, in yeah. the shop after work at the end of the day. And uh, Zekorms, uh, Zekorms in the chat said CLI is also command line interface. So thanks for joining. Is, in there. I'm an RF Zekorms. guy. I'm an RF guy. So that <laughs> yeah, two different CLIs there. So that That's command right. line interface is for programmers. <laughs> That's right. That's for the software software yes. guys. I'm not a software guy. I'm an RF guy. Uh, I can't spell. I can't spell software. <laughs> IP, IP or any of those things. Okay, continuing with the terminology discussion. Did you know that DOCSIS is an abbreviation for Data Over Cable Service Interface Specifications? It's not Data Over Cable System or Data Over Coax System. It is Data Over Cable Service Interface Specifications. And over on the right side, you can see a copy of the first page of the DOCSIS 4.0 physical layer spec. And they even spell it out right there. So that's what it is. Um, DOCSIS, of course, has been around since the 1990s, which surprised a lot of people. DOCSIS 1.0 was 
was introduced in was it ninety six or ninety seven somewhere. I thought it was ninety seven, but I, yeah, somewhere around there because they first they had the MCNS spec and then right. they 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 called it Doxus. Um, but the Doxus by itself as a specification and then of course as a standard. Um, defines what's called interoperability between cable modem termination systems and cable modems um, or CCAPs and cable modems. And for this compatibility or interoperability bit, uh, for those of you who've been around with computers for a long time, you may remember Hayes um, dial-up modems. Oh, yes. Uh, Hayes was a big player in it, and then other companies started making dial-up modems of their own brand. But you you may recall that they were all Hayes compatible. Yes. And you wanted... That was, a, a that was the standard. Modem. It was the industry standard. Yeah, it was, it was kind of the, industry, the de facto standard. So if you had a Hayes compatible modem, that means you could use any maker model of Hayes compatible modem at, at a data center or ISP right. um, or inside your, your personal computer um, because they would interoperate. And that's what DOCSIS does. It, it establishes the processes and specs and standards uh, to ensure interoperability between cable modems and CMTSs or CCAPs. And that way you can use any brand of, of CCAP or CMTS in the head and hub and any brand of cable modem out in the field. As long as they're all DOCSIS devices, they are supposed to be interoperable and they should be, of course, compliant with the DOCSIS specs. Um, and as you'll note in this last bullet here, the, the latest version of DOCSIS is DOCSIS 4.0. If it's something you want to read, uh, you can download the DOCSIS specs. And notice I said specs from Cable Lab's website, because the one I show on the, the right side of the slide here is just the physical layer spec. Um, there's, there are, what, about probably close to a half dozen um, other specs that um, fall under the umbrella of DOCSIS. So there's the, oh, what is it, OS, Mulpy, and I forget all of them. But. RF, OSSI, yeah, there's a ton. Yeah, Although- there's a bunch. In the last episode that I had with John Downey, he was giving me grief because I said DOCSIS spec, and he says, but it's, it is DOCSIS, you know, data over system interface specification, so you oh, wouldn't... Service, data over service. So, I, was, I, I always do that. I always say system and service. I, I do that continuously, so I always get it well, wrong. Well, so and I, I know John, I know John would, would do that, and I would do it too. Now, here's the interesting thing. From, um, as published by Cable Labs, it is a specification. Now, in this case, the one of the example on the right is the physical layer specification. So it is the DOCSIS physical layer specification. Cable Labs can't create standards. Now, SCTE right. can. SCTE is an ANSI recognized um, standard setting body. So SCTE, for example, can take a DOCSIS spec and make it a standard. Uh, a, physical, a physical layer spec or the OSSI spec or multi spec, whatever, and can turn that into a standard. But Cable Labs can't. So yeah, it's DOCSIS is a is a, a collection of specifications as published by Cable Labs, and then uh, an organization such as SCTE can turn those specifications into standards. Right. So technically, it is a it is a specification if you're thinking of it from the perspective of of uh, Cable Labs. But you might want to add a descriptor in there. Which spec is it? Is it the is it the FI spec or physical air spec or one of the others? And and there is a. Completely different information. Um, if you look at the the FI spec versus the OSSI spec, and and I do recommend people, you know, I always encourage people to read these different specifications or standards, whatever we're going to call them. Um, lots of good information in there. But if you just focus on the RF spec uh, or the FI spec, 
that's going to have different information than what's in the OSSI spec. And then there's yeah. also like a cable modem OSSI spec, and then there's a CMTS OSSI spec. So depending on what information you want, you really have to get into the a, specific spec that you want. I think there's a security spec too, if yeah. I remember. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a ton. So there's about a half dozen different specs in each version. So Docs is for, oh, you go to the Cable Labs website and download the spec or specs of interest. I get them all. I like to keep folders on my my computer, so I'll download all of them just to have them um, on hand. But they do get updated from time to time, so it's a good idea to make sure you have the latest version if, in fact, you do download these for reference. Correct. Oh, and here's, a, here's one that I love to have fun with. <laughs> The Department of Redundancy Department. What a perfect name. <laughs> oh, yes. So did you know the following are redundant? Cable MSO. And I see this a lot in articles that I edit for Broadband Library, and I hear people talk about this. Cable MSO. Well, look, if the, if the entity is an MSO, it's a cable operator. That's by definition, an MSO is a, is a cable operator. AM modulation. Um, <laughs> amplitude AM modulation, modulation. Amplitude <laughs> modulation. So, yeah, amplitude modulation, modulation. And you can see where I'm going with this. Yes. FM modulation. You don't need to say modulation after AM or FM. Frequency modulation, modulation. Here we are the continuing with the Department of Redundancy Department. QAM modulation, same thing. QAM is a type yeah. of modulation like AM and FM. So and I'm guilty, of, I'm guilty of saying that all the time. Oh. Quam I, I know I've done this before, too. You can say QAM modulator. That's referring to a device that generates a, a, a QAM signal. But QAM modulation, redundant. Quadrature amplitude modulation, modulation. RF frequency. Yeah. Oh, I'm so guilty of that one. It's, <laughs> it, you can say RF signal. You can say the frequency, uh, whatever. But RF frequency, that's radio frequency, frequency. More redundancy here. Nick Card. Yeah, I'm probably guilty of that one, too. Yeah, me too. Network interface card card. Pick card. Yeah, guilty. Card card, yep, guilty. (laughs) Pin number. Oh, so guilty. (laughs) Yes, personal identification number, number. PON network. Oh, guilty. I see this a lot. No, it's just PON uh, because PON is passive optical network. So you don't say PON network. It is PON or Spell it out, passive optical network. Otherwise, when you say PON network, it is passable, passive optical network. Network. Gosh, that's okay, why there's so much red on my papers when you edit them, Ron. I, I didn't attend a session <laughs> oh, yeah. before. I know. I'm brutal. I'm brutal with the red pen. Yes. I was taught by very good editors. Yes. Okay, let's, let's move along now and shift gears to something that um, is a little bit more interesting. And I this is something I suspect that a lot of folks who work out in the field probably don't give a lot of thought to because most of the time when we're working in the field, we're dealing with stuff in what's called the frequency domain. But did you know that a sinusoidal signal, so think of a CW carrier, can be observed on a piece of test equipment called an oscilloscope, and that's, that's illustrated in the lower left photo, um, and it shows um, that CW carrier in the time domain. Now, that simply means that Uh, If you look at the display, the amplitude is represented in the vertical axis and time is in the horizontal axis. So there you can see a nice little sine wave in the time domain. If you look at that uh, that CW carrier or sinusoidal signal in the frequency domain, for instance, on a spectrum analyzer like the one in the lower right, 
Uh, the CW carrier looks like a spike sticking up from the noise floor. And in this case, we're still seeing amplitude in the vertical axis, but we're seeing frequency in the horizontal axis. So the, the oscilloscope shows a, shows a sine wave in the time domain. And on the right, the spectrum analyzer shows that same sine wave, or CW carriers, we usually call it, um, in the frequency domain. You know, Ron, when I first started as, a, as, as an engineer working at C-Core Electronics, having a, a bachelor's degree, understanding the difference between frequency domain and time domain was probably one of the biggest challenges I had un until I actually started working with other engineers who, who really understood that and, and they were explaining it to me. And, and then I got in front of an oscilloscope and a spectrum analyzer, and, and I was seeing it and, and actually applying it. And then, I, and, and then it, like, clicked in my head. But when I was yeah. learning it in school or when people were trying to explain it to me, it just absolutely did not make sense. But I think your slide really kind of helps make that make sense, at least to me, because like I understand it now, but I, I hope other people, like if, if they're struggling with it, I think the best way to actually have it make sense is to have those two devices that you had right there and, yeah. and like see one to the other. And then it yeah. really starts to make sense. As you increase the frequency, you see the sine wave get faster and you see the frequency on the spectrum analyzer get higher. That's well, what you'd see on a display like this is let's, let's say we change we increase the frequency of the sine wave in this example. And, and if we don't change any of the settings on the oscilloscope, these peaks and valleys will get closer together. There will be right. more of these individual cycles on the display as we increase the frequency. What happens on, this or on the spectrum analyzer? The position of that CW carrier changes and goes to the right. So as we increase the frequency, that carrier position on the display, assuming we don't make any changes to the configuration, if we just change the frequency in the source, by adjusting a frequency knob, um, then this carrier will move to the right. And here, we'll just see these peaks, we'll see more of these peaks and valleys on the display. They'll get closer and closer together. Correct. Um, of course, in, in uh, college, they'll often teach something called Fourier transform, when you can do a mathematical conversion between the time domain and the frequency domain, and that can get really, really into some... And they also talk about Bode plots, and, and they just oh. don't talk about things that, the way that they actually are applied in the real world. And, and I think that would also makes things more well, difficult here's, as well. Here's something I think that, that teachers should do then, and, you know, to, to help simplify this, is take an oscilloscope, take a spectrum analyzer, um, Practical take, a application. From a, take a signal from a, uh, an RF signal generator, um, a, C, a plain old CW carrier connected to a two-way splitter. One output of the splitter goes to the spectrum analyzer. One goes to the oscilloscope. Now, on an oscilloscope, you have to terminate the input, so you put a, a T in, in the line and put a 75-ohm terminator on the, the unused port of the T, so you get the correct amplitude on here. And then the same signal at the same time coming from through that two-way splitter, you see it as a sine wave like this in the time domain and as this carrier sticking up in the frequency domain. And when we see it like that, you go, oh, Totally it's the exact sense. same thing. We're just looking at it a different way. Um, um, it's just we're just seeing a different representation of the same signal. That's all that is. Now, there's this one that, that some people may not be familiar with because I've been talking about sine waves, but there is such a thing as a cosine wave. And this can come into play, particularly if you're dealing with a quantum modulator circuit. Um, but did you know a sine wave and cosine wave of the same frequency and amplitude look 
exactly the same on in the frequency domain or on a spectrum analyzer. Really, the only difference is their phases. So you can see that difference on an oscilloscope, for example, in the time domain, but you can't see it in the frequency domain. In the frequency domain, they look the same. So upper left here is a graphic representation of a sine wave. And on the frequency domain, what you'd see on a spectrum analyzer, it's you see the spike sticking up. A cosine wave, note that its phase is 90 degrees offset from a sine wave. Um, and on an oscilloscope, you'll see it. But on a spectrum analyzer, you can't tell the difference because you don't have phase information. You've only got frequency information and amplitude information. So they look identical there. Um, so it's important sometimes to be able to take advantage of um, looking at things in the time domain because sometimes things go on in the time domain that, that uh, don't necessarily show up as something you can see easily in the frequency domain. So James right. Long is, is uh, recommending a book. He says he's, he's reading a book he found in the office called Cable Modems, Current Technologies and Applications um, from around the time they're putting DOCSIS together. It's a really interesting perspective. Um, so I've, I've not, I don't, I'm not sure I've read that book before. Is, did he say who the author is? Yeah, I don't know. Well, James, let us know who the author is. Um, be interested yeah. in knowing that because I've read a lot of books on broadband, cable-related stuff, but I don't recall reading that one. Let us know. We'll know in a couple minutes. When uh, there's like a little delay, Ron, as you know, between what we're talking. That's, that's fine. If he if he chimes in with the author, uh, yep, yeah, uh, yeah, let, let everybody know because that might be a good book for folks to take a look at. All right, let's continue the discussion about the time and frequency domains. Um, on the lower left is a spectrum analyzer display of an analog NTSC TV channel. Um, now, when I, when I snapped this picture several years ago on a spectrum analyzer, I didn't have a way in the signal source to turn off the, the audio carrier, um, so I just blotted it out. But this ideally, this would just be um, the, the modulated visual carrier with the visual carrier and the color subcarrier. There would be no uh, audio carrier if you shut it off. So this would be the frequency domain. That is amplitude in the vertical axis, frequency in the horizontal axis. And if we connect that to an oscilloscope, that's what it looks like. On the right, Completely so that's different. the exactly. It's exactly the same thing, but in this case, we're looking um, at the at the uh, the modulated visual carrier in the time domain. Now, to see it like this, you have you do have to disable the audio carrier. If the audio carrier is present, that'll show up in the time domain, and it really messes up the picture. So you won't get a picture that's quite this nice and sharp. So you want to if you're going to try to look at analog NTSC or PAL. Um, visual carriers in the frequency and time domain. If you can, disable the audio carrier and then um, then look at it on the oscilloscope and you can see it, that it will look very, very similar to this. And this shows, if I remember right, um, color bars um, in the picture. So that's what it would look like in the time domain on the right. And of course, most of us these days deal with um, SC QAM signals or single carrier QAM signals. On the left is uh, the familiar 6 megahertz wide haystack. This one's for a 64 QAM signal. Not many of those out there anymore. I think most people have switched to 256 QAM. But um, if you look at a 256 QAM signal or a 64 QAM signal on a spectrum analyzer, they're nearly identical. It's, it's really, really, really hard to tell the difference. Um, in fact, visually, you'd look at it and you couldn't tell the difference. But if you could overlap the two exactly, you see there's a slight, very, very slight change um, right in in the edges here, just just barely visible. I've done that before. You can overlap uh, two signals from the spectrum analyzer. You can see, okay, there's a slight difference, but nothing you're going to notice uh, typically visually in the, on the spectrum analyzer. So there's a, 
a frequency domain view of a QAM signal. And there it is on an oscilloscope, something most people probably never seen. You just hook up the, the RF signal source just with one QAM signal. Hook it up to an oscilloscope and adjust your time per division and trigger controls and all that, and you'll get a display that looks something like this. I've got another one in just a little bit that shows it kind of zoomed in. But um, on the right is the time domain display of the, of the QAM signal, and you can see the variations in amplitude, which represent different constellation points. Um, you don't see it so much on this display, but there are also typically phase shifts between these transitions. Um, in many instances, and that just tells you that you're switching locations on the constellation display for that symbol point. So each one of these, think of it, each one of these little bursts represents a, a, a symbol point on a constellation display. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what it looks like. It's kind of like a fractal or something in the, in the sign well, in the uh, I mean, domain. It sort of is, but the the way I like to suggest people think of a constellation display is that those points on the display, uh, symbol points simply represent the instantaneous amplitude and phase of the RF signal right. at a given point in time. So same thing here. If you look at this in a time domain, um, each one of these represents uh, a certain amplitude and a certain phase. You can't see the phase on this particular um, screenshot, but you can see the amplitude variations. And if you can see the phase difference, you might be able to figure out where on the constellation display um, that particular say, symbol little, is. This little burst here, what, you know, which yep. point that might represent. So continuing on with, in this case, analog TV channel signal levels, did you know that when we measure the RF signal level of, of an analog TV channel visual carrier, we aren't measuring its peak power. We're measuring its peak envelope power, or PEP. And by definition, PEP is the average power of one cycle during the modulation crest. So an analog visual carrier's modulation crest happens to occur during sync pulses. So when, when we take a, a signal level meter out in the field and measure the video carrier or visual carrier of an analog TV channel, when the modulation is present, the meter reported signal level is actually the signal level of the sync peaks. If you measured, if the if the meter measured all of the the uh, what's going on in the active video, well, as the picture changed, your signal level would change. So what's constant in an analog TV channel? It's the sync peaks. So the signal level meter is actually measuring the peak envelope power during those sync peaks. And that's what our meter tells us when we look at signal level. Yeah. And then when it comes to digital signal levels, like those QAM haystacks, did you know that when we measure the RF level of digital signals on cable networks, we measure the entire haystack's average power? And we call that digital channel power or digital signal power. So in the example on the lower left here, that's a a Sunrise Telecom box, and you put the, these red vertical markers around the QAM signal you want to measure, and then it will tell you the channel power or the average power for the entire 6 megahertz um, in between those two vertical markers. And on the lower right is the screenshot from a, I think that was from a, an HP 8591C, and it's doing an average power measurement of a QAM haystack, and there, there it tells us what it is. It says digital channel power equals minus 13.7 dBmV. A little on the low side, but still usable. Oh, and here's a fun one. This is, a, I know we talk about our networks being all digital or mostly digital, but they're really you know? analog. <laughs> they are yeah, really they, <laughs> The digital signals we carry in our HFC networks aren't really digital. They are analog. Um, our cable networks can't carry baseband digital data. Well, of course, if you're the purist out there and 
you can run baseband digital data through a chunk of coaxial cable. But as soon as you reach an amplifier, the digital data ain't going to make it past that first active. So we have to convert the digital data um, to analog RF if we want to transmit it through our cable networks, whether it's in the downstream or upstream. So here's a spectrum analyzer display showing some, showing some analog TV channels on the left side of the screen. And on the right, we can see some QAM haystacks. So these signals are analog, <laughs> and so are these. Yes, what they're a, all analog RF signals. What about all the marketing advertisements for our digital QAM channels? <laughs> <laughs> well, there they are. Yeah. <laughs> they're analog RF signals that, that carry uh, amplitude, amplitude and phase variations that represent the data that we're carrying on our networks. Yeah. But it's analog. They're still analog. The end they're of the day. Analog. Yes. And what's a QAM? Um, did you know that digital data is converted into an analog RF signal using quadrature amplitude modulation, or QAM? Uh, and that gives us what's called a double sideband suppressed carrier analog RF signal. So that haystack, a QAM haystack, is a double sideband suppressed carrier analog RF signal. If you remove the modulation in the QAM modulator, what you'll wind up with is a CW carrier in the center of the channel with no sidebands present. But as soon as you apply modulation, then the... Uh, the way the QAM modulator works, that carrier in the center of the channel is suppressed, so its amplitude goes down, way down in the noise, and all that QAM haystack is ba basically sideband information, upper and lower sideband information. Just going back to the Department of Redundancy department, um, is CW carrier technically correct? Yes. Carrier CW, wave carrier? CW is continuous wave. Oh, I got that one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Continuous wave carrier. Continuous. Yes. So that is technically correct then. So yeah. now, I have Darn, I thought I got you wrong. <laughs> I've heard some references say CW is carrier wave, and in some applications it might be. But for the vast majority of applications, CW is continuous wave. Um, so, yes, CW carrier is correct. I, I almost got so excited. I was ready to jump up and down, but you corrected well, me and okay. told me I was wrong. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, so then how the heck does this QAM modulator work and how do we transmit ones and zeros? Well, we're not actually transmitting ones and zeros. Uh, the the uh, instantaneous phase and amplitude of the RF signal is varying all over the place inside that QAM haystack. And the digital information that we want to transmit is represented by variations in the RF signal's phase and amplitude. So there aren't any zeros or ones in the RF signal or in the digital signal on our networks. It's, there's all these um, ongoing variations in amplitude and phase, and the instantaneous values at certain points in time represent groups of ones and zeros that we call a symbol. So, so sort of like this. So the, the signal that we get out of the process is called a single carrier quadrature amplitude modulation, um, SC QAM signal. And we call it that, uh, we started calling uh, conventional legacy QAM signals SC QAM signals, with the introduction of DOCSIS 3.1 several years ago to differentiate uh, from OFDM or OFDMA. Those are multi-carrier signals. So think of each subcarrier as a little QAM signal, uh, and they're spaced every 25 kilohertz or 50 kilohertz in that OFDM haystack. And uh, so you've got, actually got multi-carrier um, transmission versus single carrier with our legacy QAM haystack. So you've got baseband digital data on the left going into a QAM modulator, and the output in the frequency domain is this QAM haystack that's about 6 megahertz wide. Or if you're in Europe and elsewhere, it might be 8 megahertz wide. 
And on that note, Peter Whitman had a very, um, uh, how, well, I'll just say QPSK or four qualm. Almost. Yes. They're the same. One and the same. <laughs> They're one and the same. And I think I've got a screenshot that shows that here coming up pretty quick. So did you know that qualm is a type of modulation like AM or FM? And we talked about that a little bit earlier. So technically, it's incorrect to call a, a, an SC qualm signal or a qualm modulator a qualm. And people do it all the time. They call that, that modulator in a head and a qualm. Well, it's not. Uh, or they call the SC qualm signal or the haystack a qualm. It's not. Qualm is a type of modulation. And to put that in perspective, it would be no different than calling an FM signal or an FM broadcast transmitter an FM. So would you pronounce that foom? <laughs> I don't know. All right, down below here, lower left, there's an SC qualm signal in the time domain. And you can see the different amplitude signals here. But note the phase shift yes. right there. So this says that it is switching. If you were looking at this on a constellation display, um, first of all, the higher peak like this says that you're looking at a constellation point that's fairly out, far out from the center. And here you see a phase shift. So you're going from one quadrant. If that's a 180-degree phase shift or almost one, you're going down to the opposite quadrant. So there's some pretty cool stuff, and you can see the phase shift over here. Um, so this is a really cool way to see a qualm signal in the time domain. And over on the right, let me move this out of the way, uh, you can see an amplitude modulation signal or an AM signal in the time domain here up on top and a, an FM signal at the bottom in the time domain. So note here, the carrier, the carrier frequency does not change. So all these little sine waves have the same frequency. What changes is the amplitude of that signal. In the frequency, uh, in the world of frequency um, modulation, like your favorite FM radio station you listen to in your car, uh, note that the amplitude stays the same, but the frequency changes. So in the case of AM, the variations in amplitude represent the audio, and in the, the case of FM, the variations in frequency represent the audio. And with the, in the case of QAM, the variations in amplitude and phase represent the digital data we're transmitting. You get both. Both you get both. That's right. All right, this one gets a little bit deeper here. Um, it's, it's in the world of what's a constellation. And on the right, you can see a constellation display for 256 QAM. So did you know what is commonly, and I'll say commonly in the data world, not so much in cable, what is called M-ARI encoding, where M-ARI is derived from the word binary, M refers to some number of conditions, such as amplitudes, phases, and frequencies. So a 256 qualm signal has 256 combinations of amplitudes and phases that represent 256 different data symbols and can be described, as you see here in the constellation display, as a 256-point signal constellation. So each of the signal symbols happens to be a unique uh, group of ones and zeros. So each one of these little points represents eight bits. So this is eight bits, this is eight bits, and so on. Makes sense. So, Ron, just a quick uh, update for you. James came back and he said that the uh, book he was reading is a collection of white papers um, oh. from the IEEE Press, editors John Fajolik, Michelle Kuska, Vent. Kata C. Majeta. I'm butchering these names. I apologize to the authors and Shriram. And it was published in 1999. So that's cool to look up so that. Sounds, yes. Sounds like a good reference. Absolutely. All Thanks. Right. Thanks, James. Yeah. yeah. Good information. Thanks for sharing. Okay. So let's go. Uh, For Quan. Go 
continue yeah, on Peter. Yeah, with our discussion of what's a constellation. Four quam, remember that earlier? Yeah. That's four points in the constellation. We typically call this uh, quadrature phase shift keying or QPSK, but either term is correct. So it's either it's four quam or QPSK, and they're both correct terms. Uh, there's 16 quam. You can see 16 points in the constellation. And, of course, 64 quam has 64 points in the constellation. We saw in the earlier slide a 256 quam signal. Imagine 1024 quam or 4096 4, quam. Uh, it gets pretty hard to see all those individual little constellation points. Uh, or imagine 8192 quam or 16384 It just quam. looks like static. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a box, looks like a box of fuzz. Uh, so you really have to zoom in on it for a close look. So with that... Um, we've covered uh, quite a few topics today, had a little fun doing it, and uh, hopefully uh, found uh, hopefully folks found this informative. But, of course, there's only a certain amount of time that Brady lets me yak here on the, on the session. So, so many topics, so little time. So the plan is we're going to do a part two uh, next time we get together of Did You Know? And there's some other concepts and things in there I think that you'll have fun learning about or getting some clarification on that will hopefully help to... Uh, um, dispense some uh, mystery from some of these things. So yes. with that, I'm open for questions. A lot of good information, Professor Ron. Um, <laughs> Peter said that uh, it would be nice to have a Simpsons intro seeing Bart Simpson write the M. Airy for Quam uh, for 1K Quam on the school board. Oh, yes, that would be that would be very interesting. I like that, Peter. Um, you have to be careful doing stuff like that because um, you get into potential copyright issues. And, uh, you know, I agree it would be fun to do that. But you got to be careful because if somebody says, wait a minute, you didn't get you didn't get permission to use Bart's uh, yeah. likeness in your presentation. So uh, yes. cease and desist signed attorneys for Bart. <laughs> So yeah, that nice presentation, Ron. It's actually, I learned a lot <laughs> in this. Well, thanks, Brady, and it was fun. I it was said in the beginning it'd be fun and informative, and it, that's uh, the did you know one is a fun one. And, there, and we'll continue that the next time we get together. There's the, the part two. We'll continue. I still need to clean up the slides a little bit and um, do some final tweaking to them, but they're probably ninety five percent ready yeah, to go. Yeah, I'm gonna be looking forward to part two for how many other things I, I think I know. But I really don't know, but I thought I knew. <laughs> well, here's a, here's a hint for one that's in there. Sunspot outages. Yeah. Yeah, well, no, the sunspots have nothing to do with it. We'll talk about that next time. I have spots and, in my uh, face. <laughs> yeah, any, any questions? Uh, anybody come up with any more questions here while we're, we're still on? Oh, we got some laughs from Local Trees. Local Trees, always good to see on there. Peter Vittman, he says, in fact, I did the MSO wrong. So we... Got Peter there for that. So for a long time, he says. So glad, glad we helped you there, Peter. So I, you know, I think there was a little bit of things in here for everyone. So um, definitely hope everyone enjoyed this and definitely got something out of it. I definitely learned a few things along the way. Like to ask everyone watch if you got something out of this. Definitely hit the subscribe, thumbs up button. We always appreciate that, and hit the notification bell because. Then you get notified when we're doing these live streams or uploading any videos and things like that. And Ron, we really appreciate the time that you give to us and, and wonderful education. Um, CypherStream just says, Ron is the original wizard of cable. Um, <laughs> how many years have you been in it, at it now, Ron? I started in cable in 1972, so um, a bit over 50 years. Yeah, so it's uh, it shows, Ron, you definitely... You definitely know 
your stuff. <laughs> I just got back from a class reunion and family vacation. I can't believe that class reunion there were all these old people there. <laughs> well, I I and then look in the mirror and say, "Oh, wait a minute." You you brought down the age, I'm sure. <laughs> no, I didn't bring down the age. <laughs> I'm part of that group of old people and Fortunately or unfortunately. Yeah, you, you don't act bit, it and you don't look at Ron. So a little I, bit more than 50 years in the cable industry. Yeah. It's it's All done you well and you've done the industry very well. We definitely well, appreciate you. your time. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. So um, folks, uh, we will we will be back on I think it's um June 30th. Um, John Downey will be with us and we'll be back for an episode on your questions answered. I've I have a backlog of listener questions we'll be tackling. So it'll also be a great time for any of you to join in and ask us anything so you can stump us two chumps. Um, um, not Ron, but John and I. <laughs> and then um, and then Ron will be scheduling up this uh, the, the next episode of, of this, um, part two for Did You Know? So thanks again, Ron. Until next time, take care and keep learning, everyone. So. Again, I thought you just said your knowledge is remarkable and appreciated from CyberStream. So I, I second that sentiment. So again, Thanks for the kind words. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks for all the comments in the chat. Take care, everyone. Thanks again. Bye, all.